I'm Kieran. And I'm Eve. This is Kitchen Table Cult. Where two quiverful escapees talk about our experiences in the cultish underbelly of the religious right. Hi, Kieran. Hi, Eve. How are you uh, doing with this uh, apocalypse anxiety and the war in the Middle East? Uh, I mean, like, I have been doing the thing where I don't read a lot about it because I have enough stuff happening in my nervous system that I don't need to add this to it. Yeah. Which is not to say that I don't know what's happening or that anything is happening because I have been reaching out to my friends who are Jewish and checking in on people and making sure everyone is okay and that they know I'm like here if they need to vent or whatever and like have feelings in a private space yeah 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 but like it's it's just bad all around is my take all of these things can be true it's all bad yeah so if you're if you grew up evangelical you're probably having a lot of triggered reactions to what's going on because it's you know, the kind of stuff that, like, Christian evangelicals have been using to, like, further their rapture panic projects for so long. And um, if you don't know what we're talking about here, we did a couple episodes about this back in season three that I think still stand up. Mm -hmm. And we'll put links to them in the show notes. But, like, like Christian evangelical anti-Semitism is something that we all have to like work through and reckon with as part of our deconstruction process. And also, you know, the Islamophobia that we all grew up with post nine 11, like we're seeing so much of that again. And it's just so much of it. It's really upsetting. Yeah. Anyway. It really is. That's, I hate it so much. All I have to say is it's bad and check your sources on things before you reshare them because there's a lot of images especially that are being shared as if they're from this current conflict that a lot of them are like this actually was from Iraq or this was actually from uh, Syria or you know just really really be careful what you're reading and reposting and trusting yeah, a large part of the reason that I haven't looked into a lot of things is because there's just so much disinformation and misinformation out there right now. Mm-hmm. Like, Twitter is just shit right now. There's no finding, like, good, real-time, accurate information for what's yeah. happening. Like, the best that I can offer is just, like, my condolences and solidarity with the people who are being impacted on all sides because it's just it's some bullshit it's some bullshit and we we love and support our jewish friends we know this is like physically very anxiety inducing and we love and support our muslim and gazan friends who are going through this holy shit okay i don't know if this is Happier material that we're turning to. I guess it is. 
no one's dying yeah no one's dying um there's no there's no deaths involved well we do have actually to segue into this children are being um messed with and it's horrible but no one's dying well but to segue into this topic we do have some good news which is that josh duggar will remain in prison through october of 2032 so he will not get out early he is staying in jail for a long time. Fuck the carceral state, but also like we have no better way of dealing with this bullshit. So you can't traumatize kids from chill- from prison, right? Right. So there is um, hope on that front. Ish. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about Jill's book today. So Jill Duggar Dillard released a memoir called Counting the Cost couple months ago right after shiny happy people aired kieran read it a while back and i have just been behind so i finally got caught up so my reaction's real fresh and yours is a little like sat in the basement and aged a bit how how, yeah. how do you feel about this after you know a couple months i am still pretty impressed uh with the book we we talked about ginger's book earlier this year becoming free indeed and the vibes of both books are radically different jill's book it's gonna be so hard to keep names straight jill's book you can do it i, I can do it you. i believe i believe in myself jill's book first of all calls iblp an actual cult which is yep. great names josh's abuse as the abuse that it was mm-hmm. and is not not so subtly trying to be like a come to Jesus moment for the readers. Like she's very clear that she is still a Christian and a lot of her like framing of how she is and her thoughts and how she's changed is like still within that rubric, but it's not, it doesn't turn into a salvation message at the end, which is. Yeah. She's not using the book to like bring it people into the fold. Like she is just telling her story. And I really liked that it's her voice all the way through. I know like there was help and contribution from Derek and their ghostwriter, but like she tells her own story and she is not trying to put a spin on it. She doesn't have an agenda with like the narrative must end this way in order for me to be a good witness for Christ. Mm -hmm. There's, there's a lot less, self-deception in her narrative uh, perspective, I think, than there is with Ginger's. Ginger's was just very frustrating because it's like, oh my God, you're so close, but like you still are are forcing yourself into these boxes mm-hmm. because you are afraid of eternal damnation for your soul. And Jill's a lot more like, well, that was fucked up. Yes. Yes. And I just, I appreciate the candor a lot. Yeah. Yeah. The, she is much more candid and much more real, which there's a whole chapter where she talks about like having to learn how to be a real human being and how to just like accept herself for who she is at the moment. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, might include like taking a picture of your anniversary dinner and leaving the pina colada cup in the shot. (laughs) And like, I I love to like the, the, the voice of current day Jill, you know, kind of like being kind, but 
open about how past Jill's fear of confrontation, fear of conflict and need for approval because of the culture that she was raised in and the fear that drove all of that really like forced her hand to make some decisions that she now like feels like she was coerced into, even though she like stepped into them freely in the moment, the like container in which they were made was not an actual, mm-hmm. there was not actual space for consent or freedom. And she's very clear about that. And that's just, that takes so much growth to be able to recognize. I, yeah. Her therapist is very good, I think. And has yeah. helped with helped with that a lot. And also she has an actual therapist, which is She has great. an actual therapist. Uh, he's indigenous, which is great. Like, I feel like there's just like so much perspective that this therapist, you know, gave her that she's able to like bring forward mm-hmm. as she's writing this book. Like, I think that like, you know how we were talking about Ginger's book and like how she may regret having written it that way later. Mm -hmm. I don't feel the same way about this one. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, This book feels, it feels like she's been out longer and has done more healing and more internal work and has really kind of like both books, uh, something that we talk a lot about it. Like when we're writing stories, like what is, what is this doing for you? Right. Like mm-hmm. are you, both books were written to like take back the narrative from Jim Bob. Mm-hmm. Like, but I feel like Jill's really made the narrative her own. Like mm-hmm. she authored her own story, not just literally, but like, this it's is where it's actually, singing. yeah, it's actually her perspective. Whereas Ginger's like, so according to my husband and according to our pastor, you know, right. she's like la- bringing these voices to the front to speak for her. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, it feels a lot more cooked. It does feel a lot more cooked and it feels like, I think even if in the future she changes even more or you know has more complicated feelings about this version of what she wrote i think she'll be able to bring the grace that she gave to her past self in this book to her current self in the future yeah i can see like ginger getting to a point in her evolution where like at some point she may want to issue a retraction for things that she said in her book Mm -hmm. and i don't think jill's gonna be at that ever need that i think like everything is very like set in the moment that she's in contextually. And like, if she changes further, like she's not going to need to walk back. Right. Anything that she said. I mean, perhaps maybe she doesn't really see Michelle as complicit in all the ways that like, I think you and I do. So that might be the only thing that she would need to like, you know, re examine and Mm -hmm. assign more agency toward, but yeah. 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 But it it felt reading Jill's story felt very familiar to me. A lot like we have gone through similar mm-hmm. similar things. We have all read boundaries and had like world shattering <laughs> moments. Cloud and Townsend breaking <laughs> in rain. Just like writing twenty seven page letters to your father about like you crossed my boundaries in all these ways over the years, and he gives you a fake apology. Like yeah, these are very familiar moments. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So on on a lot of levels, I was able to relate to it more because same same kind of like internal work had been done and it was obvious that that same we have we have gone through the same internal steps we have we have been to therapists who tell us similar like things and give us similar tools and frameworks for dealing with ptsd and anxiety and like all of all of the mess that growing up in these environments like come with yeah and i think one thing that like really stands out in the difference between hers and gingers is because she's done that kind of work that level of work that i don't think ginger has she's able to assign blame to jim bob Mm -hmm. whereas gender just goes straight for gothard and like that's it like yeah so jim bob is not seen as a villain with agency Mm-hmm. Where, where he, whereas here he is really like a malefic force, and like Gothard's kind of like somewhere out there in the distance, like informing all of his stuff. But like she's holding her dad responsible for the stuff that her dad actually did. Yes, um, it's huge, huge, huge difference. Yeah, yeah, especially because and towards towards the end of the book she gets into the details of the abuse that Josh inflicted mm-hmm. and names, not just Josh, but also everyone else who was involved in like, like eliminating their right to privacy and is very detailed about who it did what. And is also very detailed about her dad's IRS Fraud. Yeah, let me just like clar- <laughs> clarify here. She does not get into salacious detail about what Josh did. We do not hear what about what Josh did to her, period. We hear about how her like depositions and victim impact statements were, you know, released to In Touch magazine yes. like, against her will and like her privacy was invaded in terms of like what ended up in the public eye and like how she responded to that process with the lawsuit yes. that she and her sisters initiated. So yes, this is not a tell all gross, <laughs> no. gory details book at all, which is good. No, but she's very clear about like how she holds the various people involved in the things that traumatized her and re-traumatized her, how she holds them accountable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and names that it was abuse in no uncertain terms, which is not something that Ginger was able to do at all in the entire book. When yeah. she, And she didn't even really address it. She was just sort of like, well, Josh messed up. Whoops. That's not <laughs> and, my problem, though. You know. So uh, there's, there's definitely been a lot more reckoning and mm-hmm. healing and, like, personal kind of growth to you know the point where you are okay to name the people who abused you as people who abused you that happened in Jill's book yeah and I can see I can see in the timeline that she gives at the end of the book like what why filming for shiny happy people made sense for her and like Mm -hmm. how it fits into that timeline she doesn't mention it I think it was still like 
when this was going to like final layout, it was probably still embargoed and she couldn't mention it. But like, if you fill in the gaps, like if I was filming in like, uh, March 22, March 22. Yeah. And then December 22, like the, those dates probably would have been around when she was filming. It tracks with some, some of the other stuff she's saying and about like, you know, whether or not her seven hour deposition for Josh's like criminal trial was going to be used later. It, she said it didn't end up being, but like it fits in with that timeline very clearly. It's like, so she's being open in all these ways and anticipating all this stuff becoming public. And so like taking back her narrative with this book and taking back her narrative with the interview, like that makes Mm -hmm. so much sense. Yeah. Yeah. So you want to like get into like what actually happens in this book. So what do we get? Yeah, um, it's pretty. Uh, I just blanked on chronological. Thank you. <laughs> like <It's> chronological, <laughs> we get from childhood to current day. Um, she has like this like transformation from the the, the childhood self, who she refers to as little Jilly Muffin, mm-hmm. um, or sweet Jilly Muffin, uh, to like her present day adult self. All of these like big like boundaries change as in personal epiphany is about like how to operate as an adult, like all taking place around her Saturn return, which I find really funny. She doesn't name it as her Saturn return, but like, if you look at the dates, you're like, Oh, she was 27. Hmm." Yeah. Hmm. (laughs) I see you. Saturn's like, you need boundaries. And she's like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Those, those things. Yes. It's a great time to read the book called boundaries. Yeah, so it's pretty chronological. It starts, like, before the show happens. Mm-hmm. It starts around when Jim Bob is running for office. Mm-hmm. And, like, how what struck me as interesting, because this is something that you see often with, like, larger families and but also very, very, very often in like political families, political homeschooling families is like these words and phrases become loaded and your parents can say this phrase, like she used an example of a phrase that they used growing up um, to note when someone was like dressed immodestly that would like get every boy to look down. Um, And they just shouted the word Nike, like the shoe. Yeah, it was a cue to like look at your shoes. There's someone immodest nearby, and that way you're not like announcing to the world someone immodest is nearby and like putting mm-hmm. your judgment of them out publicly. But you're is a code word internally. I did I ever share with you like the the lexicon I was developing back in like 2014 about funny stop Maybe. thing phrases. This Maybe. is like a. This is this exact kind of thing is something I've been fascinated with for so long. Like linguistic things that like short circuit reasoning mm-hmm. because you're so used to the behavioral cues that they initiate. And yep. like it looks to outsiders like brainwashing, but it's not because there's like this entrenched system of like uh, patterns of behavior and like, you know, like you are short circuiting critical thinking because it's already been done for you. You've outsourced it. Yeah. So yeah, there were like all these like cues and, and 
words and like phrases that my family used. And I used to keep track of like a lexicon of them um, and then kind of expanded it to like more Sovereign Grace Ministries at large, like all the ways they used for this stuff. But like, it's really familiar to me. She's like talking about the different phrases that they use to like Mm -hmm. cue behavior in public without like letting outsiders know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Another one that she mentions frequently in the book is window of opportunity and later ministry Mm -hmm. and ministry was used a lot in my family because like we had to, you know, like my parents believed that they had a ministry for single mothers, which no. Um, so like not- stirring, up, <laughs> stirring up contention among the brethren is another mm-hmm. phrase that they use is like saying anything that like will like be too true and rock the boat and like maybe make people upset. You're like, I think like the original passage, like she's quoting is like talking about like someone like your dad going into a church and like causing a church split by like right dividing people against each other theologically like that's probably what it was originally for but it's used internally in that family as they like stop talking this way you're gonna like rock the boat and like mm-hmm. people will be upset and we can't control the crowd control is is more important than right actual discussions some other themes that like really stand out to me is like not to like armchair diagnose, but like Jill clearly has like a generalized anxiety disorder and the way she's raised to fear, you know, God and punishment from God and like internal damnation, like that's brought into every decision and every mm-hmm. conversation. It's like, because she's taught from so early on that because she's been told you know, taught scriptures and knows better that if she sins in this way, you know, and has been taught to know better then her punishment will be doubled because, you know, like you're dressing immodestly on purpose when you've been taught modesty teachings, like you are taking on a layer of like active proactive rebellion. And Oh my God, I forgot about that. That was a thing for us. Yeah. That was such a thing. Oh I my God. still remember the day that I wore a dress that came above my knees and I felt so scant. Well, not only did it come above my knees, it had one of those like V-neck kind of like triangle. Oh, sweetheart necklace. Yeah. Sweetheart, sweetheart neckline. Yeah. So it was not only could you see my knees, but there was also cleavage involved. And I was like, I, I like I like walked just like down the street in my little town and it was like oh my god the I'm fabric so, suggests like, that you have boobs <laughs> and legs <laughs> boobs and legs at the same time smutty look so smutty and it was hot pink so it was like I was obviously dressing for attention I need to find yeah. a picture of this yeah you are defrauding the brethren. I was, I was, I definitely had that thought while I was walking downtown and no one was paying me any mind because summer. (laughs) (laughs) Summer season. Right. Yeah. I, I think that like 
that is really, really powerful. And that, that's the kind of thing that like I can see is it plays in her conversations with her husband to go on contraception because she had a like really traumatic birth and like was encouraged to not have more kids. And like her decision to get her nose pierced and like all of these things, like all of these layers they have, there's just this huge existential like weighted blanket on all of these decisions that like yeah. cues instant panic of damnation. Uh, not just like this will piss off Jim Bob and like people magazine will report on it, but like, and I'm going to hell. Right. All of these things. And that's yeah. like people who have grown up in this know like how that added weight feels but something that I keep coming back to with my therapist was like she keeps putting the pieces together of not only was it fucked up like what my parents did and told me but on top of that there was this other level of like am I going to hell for this and she's just like you know better right and then she's just like the these scales this is bad like it it was fucked up on this level, but also this other level, also even more fucked up. And the fact that you have to fight both of those levels in order to just live like a normal human being is like nothing short of like a plot. Like, you're yeah, doing I mean, good. <laughs> in, in creative writing, craft conversations, we talk about like, what are the stakes, raising the stakes for things. And like, it's the like you wrote a fiction story and like there's a conflict and it's like so minor that like the reader doesn't feel any like uh, attachment to the conflict or the, any sense of urgency about the mm-hmm. issue because it's so minor. And so you need to raise the stakes to make it clear why this is important now and like why this is urgent. And like, I think that's, that's one of the things that like is hard to pick up on in these sorts of like post-cult memoirs if you aren't familiar with the stakes of eternal damnation and like knowing what that feels like it's going to be like yeah dude what's the big deal you just pierce your nose like who cares but yeah the the stakes being so high my therapist also likes to be like yeah you were like trained to not like have needs and not assert your needs and like taught that to do so would be not just like, you know, rebellion against your parents as an authority, but like active rebellion against God's authority and like inviting damnation. Like it's like the stakes are really, really, really high mm-hmm. unnecessarily. And I, you know, a lot of people in our, our community of ex evangelicals are like starting to talk about that kind of stuff being, child abuse bringing Mm -hmm. that kind of thinking into a child's life at a really young age and like i'm down for that definition yeah yeah i fully accept yes because it really it it fucks you up so much it really does like it it should and we we kind of touched on this a little bit in our last episode with shannon we're like it really shouldn't be this hard to just and allow yourself to enjoy something like enjoying something should not be a sin issue (laughs) Right, but, like, you have to get through the layers of, like, is this okay? How do I stop feeling guilt about it? Mm -hmm. How do I stop feeling 
like totally brand new and like confident about doing it period. And then like in the moment, like unable to like be present and enjoy it because you're dissociating yeah. with high levels of anxiety vibrations. Yep. It's a lot <laughs> that, of work. And that's how purity culture sex goes for most of us. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She doesn't get into that. We don't get, we don't go there, but like, it's just like, that's the formula. That's how it feels trying to like have it fun. It doesn't turn off. After you say, saved yourself for marriage. Like, you don't there's no off switch for that kind of yeah no panic button no no and when you're taught which this is actually a pretty good segue to the next thing that i really wanted to talk about with jill's book when you're taught that pleasure is sinful Mm -hmm. then suffering becomes holy and this is a huge sort of theme kind of in the middle of the book and like kind of interspersed throughout the book where Jill talks about like how suffering is seen as something that is like holy and like better. And so when they're doing things and people are sending them hate mail, Jim Bob is telling them like, well, you know, people who are doing righteous things are always going to be persecuted. Right. It wasn't like it was, it's mean of someone to do that. Of course that hurts. It's this means that we're doing it right. And like, yeah. you know, it happened on the campaign show it's, when she was young too. Like, yeah, it's a, it's this thing that she brings out to like remind the reader why she stayed in for as long as she did of like, you cannot tell that like what you are doing is like counter to anything that you actually want or like or is good for you because you are trained to instinctively reject pleasure and instinctively embrace suffering as like this is an affirmation of what I am doing as being God's will and holy. Mm-hmm. Which is like, that's a lot to unlearn. And mm-hmm. if you don't unlearn it, that will really mess up your life. Ask me how I know. <laughs> <laughs> Karen, how did you know? <laughs> so I've been in therapy for a long time. And a lot of it comes back to like this piece where like the act of pursuing joy is so revolutionary and so counter to what I grew up and the idea, not just like, like the pursuit of joy. I've been fine with that for a while, but the idea of allowing the good things to happen to me without like shields up and without (laughs) like getting in my own way about it, that Mm -hmm. has been like the biggest struggle of my whole adult life. Yeah, because not only does it, it feels dangerous, tra- it keeps you trapped in situations that are bad for you, like actively bad for you, because you think that this is a confirmation that this is God's will. It also sets you up to constantly make decisions where you choose the harder thing, because that is an indication of it being God's will. I remember like this moment, I had this, it was very revolutionary. It was probably senior year of college. And like one of my friends who 
grew up in the homeschooling movement, but what wasn't core reform wasn't like nearly as fundamental as I was just looked at me and was just like, remember, like, just because it's the harder thing doesn't mean it's the right thing. And I was like, huh? what? <laughs> Come again. Did you not um, read the book? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it was like, excuse me. <laughs> and that was like kind of this like revolutionary guiding thing. Cause it's like, you can see the self-sabotage. Mm-hmm. It's a door that you can choose every time if you choose the harder thing, because that's God's will. And to not actively go toward that is something that you really have to reprogram. It's really hard to not like. It's so hard. Gravitate toward it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There are some people who read Do Hard Things and took it to heart in their teenagehood. And there are some people who didn't. And it's very obvious. <laughs> if you know you know and if you don't you don't want to know don't want yeah. don't worry about it don't worry about it just don't don't even you don't need oh to oh my god go listen to the the current currently popular do hard things glenn and doyle's podcast instead thanks bye <laughs> i just i still as a sidebar for those of you who do know i literally drew dicks and sharpie in my copy before i threw it out and it was great good job good job i now have small regrets because i don't have it for my library but it was worth it i'm sure goodwill has it somewhere not here sort of <laughs> along these lines like uh there's this passage in chapter three that I want to read that just like really stood out to me as like, oh my God, that was me. Um, she's talking about like how in high school, like the purity culture stuff was not hard for her to embrace because she was so busy. And oh, yeah. I, I am just like strongly identifying with this. Like chapter three, clipped wings and hills to die on. That's the title of the chapter. I was okay with waiting. As the show kept on rolling from one season to the next, my life was increasingly full. Not only did I have three young buddies to look after, Joy, James, and Jenny, but I was also training to be a midwife. Between filming, studying, attending births, and making sure that my three buddies were dressed, washed, fed, doing their schoolwork, and everything else, trying not to think too much about finding Mr. Wright wasn't too hard. Besides, Pops was already helping do some of the thinking for me. Yes, she calls her dad Pops mm -hmm. through the entire thing. It's horrible. That was me in high school. I think there's like, there's like this layer yeah. of like, so I was queer and wasn't experiencing crushes the same way everybody else was. I didn't know it. So it was easier. And then also, yeah, I was too busy, busy keeping little children alive. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. There was, that was also really similar for me too. Like, both of those and also like like my parents I don't remember how old exactly I was when they were like you're not gonna date you're gonna court because mm -hmm. of course I think it was shortly after I kissed dating goodbye came out so like maybe 98 or something yeah and I was like yeah okay but like I didn't want to get married anyway so I was like cool fine whatever and went on living my best life as you know a seven-year-old <laughs> and then like when as as I got older I kept being like looking at my parents marriage and 
like the life that I was being set up for and just like, this is not, this doesn't vibe with me. This is not the thing that I want. So like saying no to dudes didn't give me any problems. I like, I mean, I wasn't the one who was saying no, but like, I didn't feel like I was missing anything by not courting. And I say as the first person in our friend group who wound up courting and going through that process, but yeah, well, you know, um, I think there's also this element of the isolation that she experienced. Like she talks about later on after she's had a couple kids, like learning how to make friends outside of her family and like being pushed in that direction by her therapist to deliberately build a friendship support network that is not family Mm -hmm. and like that big family social dynamic they do like encourage you to like have your siblings as your best friends so you're not like spending time with other people outside the family and that also like reinforces the purity culture stuff Mm because like i didn't have guy friends until i was in college like it just wasn't a it wasn't not allowed but it wasn't I didn't have an opportunity for it because I was not going to youth group because I was babysitting. Like, yeah. Yeah. All of my friends were online. Mm -hmm. That was, that was my, like, I mean, it was the one group of friends that my parents couldn't like break up by forcing a church split because if you (laughs) don't know, that was actually a thing my parents did too. That was Uh not just a funny joke. I mean, it was a funny joke, but actually did happen. It was a funny joke, but it was reality. But (laughs) also like, this is how how you and I became friends because like our parents couldn't. They couldn't talk to each other. They couldn't keep the parent, keep us off the internet late at night when they were in bed. Uh Yeah. So that (laughs) was, that was my, that was my only way around like only ever having my siblings to talk to was because the internet existed. Yeah. And also like to be frank, like I think that there's this like dynamic where like a lot of my siblings and I like really like love and respect each other, but like socially speaking, we would not necessarily be friends if we did weren't born in the same family. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like it's just complicated. So like, Oh man, it was a relief to have friends outside the family. And I think that's the thing that Jill, like I've seen families like that. I've been very intimately part of families like that with all the kids do get along with each other instinctively and like would have been besties even mm-hmm. if they weren't born in the same family. And like the ability to just like isolate yourself within that unit it's so easy. It's so, so easy. And so like she was describing having to be deliberate about it. Like that is a process I've watched people have to go through. Yeah. And also the way she describes, like it is challenging to have to learn how to make friends with other people when you're an adult and when you're Mm -hmm. married, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's like, it's hard mode. It's hard mode for making friends. I mean, yeah, you didn't learn all these like social skills in elementary school when, you know, little Jenny was being mean to you and stealing your lunch. So like now you have to do it all as an adult and you're like, the stakes are so much higher. Mm -hmm. Which is really like something that I really appreciated about because the whole counting the cost is, is the entire, like, that's the point. Like the stakes are high. Yeah, is the entire like theme of the book is like the stakes are so much higher 
And I feel like Jill does a really good job of describing like in a way that people can understand why the stakes are so high for her and her family to like Mm -hmm. both remain in the family and also leave the family and how adapting to like a normal life is so difficult. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we kind of noted is because she and her husband went to be missionaries, which we have all our thoughts on missionary work. Yeah, but, but they were in El Salvador uh, back and forth a lot, and they were trying to serve in Panama and didn't end up. But like they were in Central America doing mm-hmm. missions work for a lot of time during this period that the book covers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what stood out to me about it is like, like you and I were able to get married as our way out. That was mm-hmm. how we got distance from our families. That was how we got out from under our parents' like control. That was what missionarying was for yeah. Jill. So for our families, the umbrella of authority situation, like it ended. Like my father explicitly had a conversation with my ex husband before the wedding, where he was like, "And then I will transfer my authority over her to you when I give her a wit." Like that was literal in my dad's mind. And so like, he did not go into this assuming that like after the wedding, he continued to have patriarchal control over our family unit. It was Mm -hmm. new. It was a separate family unit and you kind of had the same thing. And Jill's stuff, because they were in IBLP was much more like purest IBLP teaching, which is like, and the patriarch continues to have control over that family unit. And they're additionally under his umbrella. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was no separate Jill and Derek umbrella. It was all under Jim Bob. Pops. And and so the only way that they had any space at all was to do the socially approved thing of being missionaries in South America. And even that didn't work. But that space, that <laughs> literal Jim distance. Bob literally showed up at their house in Central America. God, like the gall of that man. I do not. They were like, no, we're not going to Houston for this filming. We have to stay here until Christmas. And they're like, okay. And then they just show up at their door. Show up. Yeah. Like the, the, (laughs) if, 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 if my parents or my in-laws had shown up at my door after I said, no, I'm not going to like some whatever we would be filing restraining orders because we yeah would have understood this to be a violation but because her theological understanding of this system was slightly different that was never something that she was it was going to occur to her that she had the power Mm -hmm. to do yeah 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 but that same like that's the same process for getting out is you have to go be physically far away from the people who are trying to control you. So you can have like a modicum of space to like think for a second and really evaluate like maybe this, this isn't feeling like I feel like it should be feeling if it were right. Like, and there's a lot of layers here. There's, there's really, 
overt colonialism in this decision to go use this other country as their safe space. Mm -hmm. But there's also this like element of because the, the problems there are actually life and death and a lot more intense existential, actual existential crises, you know, talking about like a former friend of theirs, former employee of theirs got murdered Mm -hmm. after they were there for a while, like that kind of stuff. Like, Having that makes their back and forth with Jim Bob seem so much less intense or like less urgent. Like it, it lowers the stakes. It puts it in perspective. And that's a really powerful thing that is like really valuable. And like being inaccessible to the constant like flying monkeys and triangulation mm-hmm. stuff that Jim Bob was pulling like is really p- wonderful. But also like oof. Yeah. Using other people's reality to like fix that. Like, uh, I recognize this. I did this with Peace Corps and I have a lot of feelings about it and a lot of regrets about it. And it's complicated. It's really complicated. Yeah. Yeah. It's really nice to go someplace where your story is boring and irrelevant, but also like, oof. Yeah. Yeah. The path out is hard and uh mistakes happen along the way and you just we grow and learn (laughs) you grow and you learn uh one thing along these these lines that i thought was really interesting you and i were talking about this before recording is just she keeps seeing her husband derek who was public schooled by the way um which i think is a good note uh pushing back on stuff that Jim Bob is doing to obfuscate his intentions or contracts, you know, like clarity about money and like where it's all going and all this stuff. And she keeps like having this like bracing for impact kind of reaction to Derek asking basic questions or stating basic facts. And it's really funny because, Oh my God, that's so familiar. Uh, Derek is, not being very confrontational. No, he's he's just saying like, okay, but these are the facts. He's Can we go back his, to the facts, please? Please, sir, I am an accountant and like this doesn't make sense. But like, but what about this? And like, Jim Bob is like, smoke and mirrors, dramatic narrative. Mm-hmm. And Jill's just like sitting in the corner, cringing, literally going into fetal position, like trying to like hide from the, the the rage that is going to come. And it's just like, it's just a very simple discussion about what's, what are the actual details here? Yeah. Yeah. But that's a whole other like learning process when, mm-hmm. when you're raised in an environment where like correcting an authority is the same thing as rebelling against that authority and the punishment is the same even if it's for something like minor or not like, even correcting but just like questioning an authority questioning yeah like they're not even trying to correct and they're just like what's true here right that's it yeah it's very yeah. simple yeah yeah and and jim bob is of course like aghast because he's never been questioned a day he will he won't allow that 
So he's very, hurt. Uh, he's very, very he's his so feelings hurt. are very, very hurt. There's the the most hurt his feelings has have ever been is because he was asked some clarifying questions, which uh, by another you know, adult. F- familiar familiar experience in my life as well. Definitely yeah. got that treatment. Just so hurt. Mm-hmm. Just so hurt by by what you said. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, the most hurtful thing that someone can do to their parent, obviously, is ask clarifying questions. Or to just, like, state or facts of question. what they did. Just, like, state, state facts. Being facts. like, you, you did this on this day, and you said these things. And they're like, wound! Right. <laughs> someone, someone, please take me to the hospital. I have been stabbed. In the back. In the back. Several times. <laughs> I'm dying. I'm dying. I have never been so grievously injured. <laughs> My child <laughs> dared question me and a word I said. <laughs> and it's just like these, like, Jim Bob is so insecure. Oh he God. is a scared, insecure little man who steals from his children. I really Sounds hope familiar. the IRS does a little look-see into his little books. Yeah, oh my yeah, God. me too. Me too. Like, uh, Jill brought the receipts for that in the book. So mm-hmm. I really hope someone just, like, mails a copy to whoever the auditor at yeah. the IRS is. Just Pops is doing a tax fraud. Big time. Just, yeah, none of these things are legal. Like, it's, I am not an accountant. And I'm like, that is not how that works. So <laughs> none of this is how If you, if you don't want to read it, the, the, like, the gist of it is, like, he was using, he was, he was saying he was paying ch- the children X amount every year as salaries and using it as a write-off and, like, itemizing all the, like, things that he was spending on the care and feeding and normal like raising of children expenses that are your responsibility as their parent and like applying that to his children as if it was a salary and then offered he his kids like 80k for an NDA and a like let me film you and your offspring forever and never amen until the end of time mm-hmm. um and never mention any of this again uh, and, and also, it's IRS, a one-time 80k payment, by the way. Right, and the and the IRS was coming to Jill and Derek and being like, "You didn't pay your tax bill. You reported more than you paid for. You reported more income than what you paid us for." Um, and they're like so confused because they thought that they had gotten a certain amount um, after like much, much strenuous negotiation and like pleading for fair like compensation um which was not it didn't come through it was not it was not fair uh (laughs) jim bob like reported that he paid them like fifty thousand dollars more than what they actually got and Mm -hmm. and apparently he was doing this for all of the kids and it's just sketchy as hell the financial abuse that jill documents in this book is horrifying and she like, identifies it as financial abuse. And I'm really proud of her. For doing I'm so that. proud like, of her for naming abuse as abuse. Like, 
it's such such a low bar, but it's so hard to do again with this all these existential like threats of hell and all of that. Mm-hmm. You know, just like existing as landmines in your brain. Yeah, um, as I mean, it, for saying these things, it takes people who don't have religious abuse a long time to name abuse for what it is at like at the hands of the people who abuse them if they were like parents and stuff. And when you add your eternal soul to the mix, it's, it's so, it takes so much longer and it's so much harder because you, you could be condemning yourself. And until you make peace with the fact that you're not, and the people who abused you should be held responsible for their abuse. It's a very, like, it's difficult. Yeah. It's, it's so hard. It's so hard. It's so hard. I'm so proud of Jill for finding the courage to tell her story and to name the things as they are. Yeah, I've never had like one of these like uh, I know Derek like said some transphobic stuff on on Twitter back in the day, but like I've never had one of these things like go past my line of vision and thought like, oh, I could be friends with this Duggar, but like I could be friends with this Duggar. Good job. Good job, Joe. Good job. Uh, All right. Thanks for joining us. Take care of yourselves. Drink water. Take your meds. Make sure you eat food. Uh, Stay off Twitter. Yeah, please, for the love of everything good in this world, stay off Twitter or X or whatever the fuck it's called now. I'm refusing to acknowledge it as X. Yeah, it's not. It's Whatever. no, it's Twitter. In 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 Germany, this is a fun fun fact. So mm-hmm. apparently, like X dot com is a thing in the U.S. or whatever. But in mm-hmm. Germany, it's still Twitter dot com for me. It it, it yeah. It, it, it does. It is not X dot com. It will it, not be X dot com. It took them like a week to, for it to reroute, but now it reroutes X dot com goes to Twitter. Yeah. Um, good. Yeah. <laughs> so enjoy enjoy that okay well i have to go put up a 12 foot skeleton because it's that time of year yes go go light up mr bones bye thank you for listening you've been listening to the kitchen table cold podcast our music is from the track janet by the bend the heavens on their albums to our producer is dave the great our podcast is made possible by patreon donations from listeners like you to support us and join our community on Slack, check out patreon.com slash kitchen table cult pod. Thanks for listening.